So a few, uh, I'm, I'm guessing this was a few months ago, I don't remember exactly when, but we were, we were at home watching um, a movie called The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Has anybody seen that or know what that is? Um, as part of the girls' homeschool curriculum, we'll watch movies. Um, so and you'll get them to the library or whatnot. To, so we were going through parts of uh, World War II, and so that was one of the movies that was on the list. Um, so we had gotten that, and none of us had ever seen it before. And so we had sat down to watch it, and basically it's a story about a Nazi officer who gets transferred to a concentration camp where Jews are being um, slaughtered. And um, the house, their house is kind of off in the distance, and I, I don't know that his wife and child, I don't remember, I don't think they knew what was really going on. But he's a, uh, basically he's in charge of the, the camp. And he's got a little boy who one day makes his way to the camp, and he meets another boy in the camp. And it's the boy in the striped pajamas. You know what the striped pajamas refers to as their prison outfits. And so he strikes up this relationship, this friendship with this boy who's just on the other side of the fence. And so the good part of the movie revolves around him going to the fence and just talking with this boy and whatnot. And I won't spoil the ending um, for you, but we're watching it. It was a, a very good movie. Um, and I'll, all I'll say about the movie is we got to the end and um, literally the last 30 seconds of the movie or so will devastate you. Absolutely devastate you. And it puts into perspective some things related to um, why we can become so callous, in some respects, to watching Jews die. Because it's not us, kind of a thing. Um, and so I don't want to ruin the end, but um, to watch Kimberly, I mean, literally, she just exploded in tears and anguish and had to leave the room. And so we talked about that a little bit later on, you know, she's like, why did you make us watch that? Why did we have to watch that? And um, I kind of explained to her, I said, well, first off, we, we didn't know. That's how it ended. But I talked to her about how, I said, you know, honey, we need to see these things. Because sometimes seeing these things um, puts things in a whole different perspective. It's one thing to hear about things. But when you actually see them, um, that's one of the downsides to seeing that in many schools they no longer do much on the Holocaust or World War II related to that. And so kids grow up not being horrified by the things that they see. And so there's a, there's a, I have to find some balance, obviously, with that. But my point of bringing this example up this morning is that you know, there's the, 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 the idiom, you know, seeing is believing. And um, it's that way with a lot of things, that we are impacted differently when we can actually see things. And sometimes seeing them is what it actually takes for us to believe, is it not? You know, we remember the story of Doubting Thomas. You know, I won't believe unless I see those nails, but I've got to put my fingers in the hole. And if I can't do that, I'm not going to believe. And all of his, you know, brothers in Christ are there, and they're all telling him what they saw, and he's just like, I'm not going to believe it. I until he saw him, And then Jesus basically says, well, hey, think about all those now that are blessed because they don't see. Well, today we have an example of that because we're going to look at the transfiguration. The transfiguration refers to when Christ was shown in his glory here on earth. So we're in Mark chapter 9 today. There's going to be three purposes we're going to look at for the transfiguration. 
If you think about it, throughout his ministry, Jesus continued to reveal who he was as both Messiah and the Son of God. The miracles that he was performing were things that nobody else could do. The things that he was saying were fascinating to people because they weren't being said by others. Um, the, the Jews that would see him in the synagogues were amazed by his teaching and his, and his command of the scriptures and the authority that he presented. They could see that, he, that there was something very different about him that they didn't see in other rabbis. And yet... They couldn't quite figure out who he was. Even the disciples, the, those who were closest to him, even the, the apostles who got to spend time privately with him, did not figure out who he was. We saw that in um, the feeding of the 5,000 and the, the feeding of the 4,000, where Jesus still had to say, you guys aren't getting it yet? You haven't figured this out? Well, there's something that happens today that I believe was God's way of sort of making it painfully obvious to them, who Jesus was. And so there's going to be three purposes we're going to see, and that was the first one. The first purpose of the transfiguration was to reveal the true nature and identity of Jesus Christ. So the first purpose of the transfiguration is to reveal the true nature and identity of Jesus Christ. I remember watching another movie. Um, I'm thinking it was Saving Private Ryan, but I can't remember where... Some soldiers liberated, I was at Auschwitz, Auschwitz, um, and it's, it's a fairly lengthy extended scene where they show soldiers walking in for the first, they knew something was going on, but to walk into those concentration camps and see the Jews that were still alive, um, they knew something was going on, they knew something horrific was happening, but it wasn't until they actually saw it with their own eyes that they realized the depth to it. And in some respects, what we have here today is when those who were present, and we'll see them in a moment here, actually see Jesus Christ transformed, um, should be the moment at which everything comes together. Everything ultimately makes sense. Now, it didn't quite do that for the disciples. We know that some of them still struggled a little bit afterwards, but that, I believe, was the intent. So let's take a look at this. Matthew 9, chapter 1. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Notice in this verse he says, some of those. So this was going to be an event that would only involve some of his closest disciples. He said there were, just these few individuals that would see something that others would not see, notice he says here, until after death. Mark reports this event as seeing the kingdom of God having come with power. And so Jesus is saying here that something is going to happen. Some of you, just a select few, are going to see the kingdom of God coming in power. Matthew further elaborates a little bit on that and says that it refers to the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. There's many who believe that Jesus was probably talking about his resurrection. Others think that Jesus was talking about his second coming, but it's pretty clear in this context that Jesus was talking about his transfiguration. So we're going to camp on that. But like I said, there's others who disagree and think Jesus was referring to something else down the line, but again, the context indicates, I think, otherwise. Look at verses 2 through 3. Six days later, that's our first clue. The resurrection certainly wasn't six days later, but six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Well, there's the few, some of you, so again, there's our second clue. Took with him Peter, 
James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white so no launderer on earth or as no launderer on earth can whiten them. When Jesus first came to earth, says that he took on human flesh. I want you to turn to Romans, or I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2 with me. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, notice it says, existed in the form of God and his full deity, did not regard earthly equality, or did not regard equality, I'm sorry, with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what we find is that Jesus Christ laid aside certain aspects, certain practices, not so much character traits or... Um, He didn't give up his omniscience or anything else, but he did choose not to exercise those things. But he did that by taking on human form. We're told that he is Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And what that does, in some respects, is it veils an aspect, or some aspects of his deity. In other words, when he took on human flesh, and you see him standing there in the flesh, you don't necessarily see the form of deity. What you see is human flesh. What we're going to see here is that veil, in some respects, is going to be removed for just a brief moment. The Greek word for transfiguration here is a word that many of you are probably familiar with. So you're all Greek scholars as well. What happens to a butterfly, kids, or a caterpillar? A caterpillar goes through something to become a butterfly. What is that? Come on, don't make me have to... Make you work too hard. I hear you guys kind of mumbling it. What is it? Metamor what? Yeah, metamorphosis. You are a Greek scholar. You're the only Greek scholar in here. That's basically the the, the root of this word, if you will. Metamorphothe, which basically means to change form. That's where we get the process from the caterpillar. That's why we use that word. Many words that we use in biology and medicine come from Greek. So Jesus here actually is changed. He's transformed. And it says in the text, before them. It's before their very eyes. They could see this. It took place physically before them. In fact, verse 3, it says, His garments became radiant and exceedingly white, so white that no launderer at the time could whiten them. I would suspect that if we were to see this today, we would say the same thing. It's not that they couldn't get their clothes white back then. The idea is that they were so white, it's nothing we could produce here on earth. Luke actually says in verse 29 of chapter 9, his face became different, that his clothing became white and actually gleamed. Matthew describes it this way, his face actually shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. Can you imagine that? Think about this, Peter, James, and John follow Jesus up to the mountaintop, have no idea what they're about to experience, and all of a sudden, they see this. Something that they probably could have never imagined. 
As far as I can tell, the Bible only records three other living human beings who were given this same privilege. One was Moses, one was Isaiah, and then one was Stephen. Moses, if you remember, begged God to see him, and God basically told him, well, tell you what, I'll put you in the side of a rock, and I'll pass by, but I'll cover you. And even as I cover you, the only thing you're going to see is my back. I believe that was probably the pre-incarnate Christ that passed by, because what you see in the Old Testament is that Jesus Christ, much like the New Testament, was the, the, the one who revealed the Father. And so what you see in the Old Testament, whenever you see um, the Lord appear, it's always the pre-incarnate Christ, because that was his ministry, both before he came to earth and afterwards, to reveal the Father. There are also a number of instances where you, you hear the Father speak, or God speak, basically, but in two persons. And again, it's oftentimes a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. The second was Isaiah. You remember the story of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees God sitting on his throne, so um, bent with fear in some respects that he says, I've become undone. The only other person that I'm pretty confident we can say saw Jesus in his former glory, if you will, was Stephen who saw the post-resurrected Christ when he was being stoned to death. If you remember in Acts chapter 7, he says that he looked up and saw the Son of God standing at the right hand of God before he died. Now, some of us suggest that maybe Paul saw him. If you remember when Paul was on the road to Damascus, knocked off his horse, saw a blinding white light. But that text does not indicate that Paul saw the resurrected Christ. It simply said he heard him. And he saw a bright light. In fact, he was blinded. It's unlikely that he saw him. Paul's description of being taken up into heaven also includes only what he heard, not what he saw. So we don't know. John happened to have had a second opportunity to see Christ. Revelation chapter 1, he says that he saw Christ. That's the book of Revelation. So what we basically have is, aside from Peter, James, and John, only three other people had the privilege of being able to see Christ in his full glory before their death. Now we'll get to see him after we die, but this was a very unique privilege for these men. You and I have never had the opportunity to see Christ in that form. However, the thing is, we do have reliable historical eyewitness accounts. That's what we have here. And so when I look at this, I have to ask myself, what was the purpose in this? I think the first purpose was for God to reveal Christ in his full um, deified glory, if you will, so that the three disciples and anyone then that would become part of their eyewitness, like us here today, would recognize that Christ is exactly who he claimed to be, which was God in the flesh. And this is where it is revealed um, in a way that um, these men could not deny, and we cannot deny today. So I believe that's the first purpose, that the transfiguration was designed to reveal to us in uncertain terms, in no uncertain terms, that God in the flesh was indeed here in the form of Jesus Christ. What's the second purpose? Well, I believe the second purpose of the transfiguration was to establish that Jesus Christ is now the new authority. It's a new authority. If you look at chapter 9 again, verses 4 and following, if we think about this, 
prior to the ministry of Jesus Christ, the law and the prophets, essentially the Old Testament, was the religious authority, was it not? That was the religious authority. In fact, we're told in the New Testament that the purpose of the law was to be a tutor to do what? To ultimately lead us to Christ. Well, at the transfiguration, look what happens. Verse 4 of chapter 9. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good for us to be or it is good for us to be here? Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they had become terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them except Jesus alone. So what do we have happening here? Notice it says that there were two individuals that appeared alongside Jesus here. One of them was Elijah. The other one was Moses. Now why do you suppose Elijah and Moses would appear alongside Jesus? Because they represented two things. What does Moses represent? The law. What does Elijah represent? The prophets. So what we have here is Jesus standing next to the law and the prophets, who were the primary authorities prior to Christ. There's a transition that's about to take place here. Notice, too, here that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. I love that. They're carrying on a conversation. Now, it doesn't say specifically whether or not Peter, James, and John um, were privy to what they were talking about, but we do get an indication from Luke what they were talking about. So somebody must have known. What do you think it must have been like to be a part of their conversation? Wouldn't you love to have been listening? What are they? See their lips moving? What are they talking about? You know? Well, Luke actually tells us. Luke chapter 9 reads this way, And behold, the two men were talking with him, Jesus, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. One of the things I love about this is, is we don't really think, I think, about um, the planning and the purpose and the discussions. You know, imagine, you, you, we have Genesis chapter 1 where God creates the heavens and the earth, and you have this interesting phrase, let us create man in our image, which implies cooperation among the triune God. Um, you have Jesus when he comes to earth saying, you know, I only say what the Father has given me to say. I only do what the Father has given me to do. There's this communication that takes place, fulfilling God's plan and purpose. And now you have Moses who wrote the law. You have Elijah who represents the prophets. And they're talking to Jesus about the next step in God's redemptive plan, which is that Jesus is going to ultimately have to depart, which is a reference to his death burial, resurrection, ultimately his ending his earthly ministry. And so they're carrying on this conversation. I don't know what they have to discuss because you're talking with the God of the universe, but they're talking and they're discussing this. It just fascinates me. But what we really have is them talking about the fulfillment ultimately of the law because Jesus came to fulfill the law. Even though Peter, James, and John were apparently able to we assume they heard the conversations. Like I said, it doesn't say they did, 
But the fact that Luke records they were talking about means somebody had to tell them. And there were only three other guys there aside from, I, I doubt that Elijah and, and Moses came back and told Luke that. But they probably were, were at least able to hear it in the distance here. But they didn't quite understand it, it says, because they didn't know how to respond to the conversation. In fact, it says in Mark here that they were terrified. Imagine, yeah, this guy you've been hanging out with is now glowing in a way that you could not have ever imagined. And he's talking with two of these amazing men from the Old Testament. I think it was Dustin might have brought up one time. It's like, I'm, I'm amazed that they knew who they were. I'm sure they weren't wearing name tags. But they knew this was Moses, and they knew this was Elijah. So they were terrified at what they were seeing. So ultimately, not knowing what to say, Peter offers to make them shelters. We can make you some tents, Jesus. He says this in verse 5. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, and they became terrified. Apparently, Peter assumed Moses and Elijah were now going to stick around. I don't think that's all that surprising, to be real honest. In light of verse 9, um, I believe that they thought that the appearance of Elijah meant that he was back to restore all things. Because they'll go on a little conversation here later saying, well, the rabbis say that Elijah's going to come back and restore everything. So Peter at this point probably thought, Elijah's here. Everything gets restored now. This is the end. This is the, this is the climax of everything here. So Jesus, good to see you here. It's good to have your buddy Moses and Elijah here with us. We know that this is God restoring all things now. Everything's come to culmination, and it's good for us to be here. Let's make you some tents. We can make you tabernacles. What were the tabernacles used? Tabernacles? Uh, tabernacles. Tabernacles used for? Tabernacles. What were tabernacles used for? That's housing God's mercy seat. It's, it's where they came to worship God, and so now people can come in. We can set up your kingdom. They can come and worship you. He thinks it's all coming to a head. But they didn't quite get that part about, no, Jesus has to leave. They didn't know what to make of that. What they hadn't really truly understood is that the old religious system, the law and the prophets, were no longer the authority. Jesus was now going to be the new authority. Verse 7, Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now in the Hebrew mind, there was one word for listen, and it was the word for obey. So to listen meant to obey. You do it with your own kids too. Listen to me! Do you really just want them to hear what you're saying? No, what you really mean is, do what I tell you to do. And so God basically is here, here is saying, obey him. Obey my son. The baton is passed from the law and the prophets to Jesus now. Where the law and the prophets were the object in some respects of their faith in the Old Testament. Ultimately it was God, but they did so through obedience to the law. Now Jesus Christ would be the object of their faith. The one whom they would obey. The one whom they would look to for guidance, direction. Just as Jesus was identified by God at his baptism, we see him doing the same thing here. And as the Son of God, he's now their authority because they are now expected to listen to him. So what we see here is that the second purpose of the transfiguration was to reveal the shift away from the law and the prophets to now 
the Son of God. Remember, the Law and the Prophets were purely to lead us to Christ. They were the tutor. And now it's time to basically hand that over. So it's all about Jesus now. I think what's interesting about this for us now is we still, and I say we in a general sense, we still sort of make the object of our faith our religion. You think about many of the churches in in the United States uh, don't know Christ. Their religion is what's important to them. They worship their religion, their beliefs, their doctrines, their ideas. It's still not about, they're still doing the law and the prophets. They're not obeying Christ. In fact, in many of these churches, it's quite the opposite. They despise Christ. And we're going to, I'm going to give you a quote here at the end of our time today that's going to make, make that point. But ultimately, what we see at this transfiguration is the, the disciples being told, it's not about the law and the prophet, prophets anymore. It's about Jesus. Listen to him. Follow him. He came to fulfill the law. And your allegiance and your obedience is now to him, not to Moses, not to Elijah, but to Christ. And we see that in the Apostle Paul, this great, amazing, educated Jew who realized that himself. When he was with the Jews, he would still practice the law so as not to offend them, but when with the Gentiles, recognized that I'm not beholden to the law and the prophets. I'm beholden to Christ. He becomes the object. That's why, for me, I, I, I remind folks of this all the time, you know, it isn't our doctrine that saves us. It's not our commitment to Christianity that saves us. It's our love for Jesus Christ and a recognition that he saved us. Which is why it doesn't require a ton of theology to be saved. What it takes for somebody to be saved is to recognize Jesus Christ died for them. The theology will come later. And yet, like I said, in so many places today, we get that backwards. So this was the transition from that old religious system to Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the third purpose of the transfiguration here, verses 9 through 13. Let's read those. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet now, or and let and yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. So this third purpose was that the transfiguration was to confirm that Jesus' death and suffering were part of God's redemptive plan. The transfiguration was to confirm that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection were part of God's redemptive plan. For many, that came as a shock. We know that because when Christ was erected or was uh, was um, arrested and crucified, what happened with the apostles? They all split. They all ran away. They were all afraid. You didn't find any of them saying, oh, just a little blip because three days he's going to rise. No, they all scattered. Even Peter denied him three times. They all went and cowered in a room together. And even then, when some eyewitnesses to the resurrection came to say, you guys are missing the point, he rose from the dead, many of them still didn't want to believe it. Cowering in fear and anxiety and grief. 
And it's because they didn't believe that the promise of Messiah had been fulfilled. They went from being excited that this is him to must not have been him because the Messiah shouldn't die. So while Jesus is making his way down the mountain here with the disciples, he's carrying out a conversation. He orders them, it's rather strange, don't tell anyone what you just saw. Verse 9, they were coming down from the mountain. He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen. Until when? Until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Now why would he do that? One possible reason is because they didn't quite understand yet what they had witnessed or what it all meant. Verse 10 says, they seized upon the statement discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They didn't quite get that part. Now the general consensus among Jews was that when the Messiah came, he would conquer Rome and establish his kingdom. That's what they wanted. In fact, the whole entire group of Jews that had moved out to the wilderness, specifically in preparation for Messiah coming and attacking Rome and destroying the Romans. And so they prepared. We'll call them the preppers of Jesus' day. The concept of a suffering Messiah that would be rejected, killed, that was completely foreign. In fact, you would have had the rabbis of that day say, oh, you're nuts. Even though it was laid out in the Old Testament. They didn't believe that. Peter, James, and John obviously struggled with that. Jesus said, there's three times in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus mentioned his, his death, resurrection, crucifixion. Um, they just couldn't quite grasp that because it ran counter to what they believed. Isn't that really the, kind of the truth too here in the United States with religion and perspectives? Sharing the Gospel with somebody and they're, they're willing to say, well, no, Jesus is all about love, but you want to start talking about sin. You want to talk about a God who judges? No, 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 that's, that's not the God that I serve. They have their own perspectives and it's hard to accept the truth sometimes when you lay it out. And it was the same way for Jews during the day of Jesus where this idea that he would die and be brutalized and then ultimately rise from the dead was completely foreign to them. Many didn't want to accept it. And I think that's what the disciples here were struggling with as they're coming down the mountain. Gee, we don't understand this part about dying. What do you mean dying? What do you mean? Now that, that now you're, yeah, why would you get arrested, Jesus? Now you're supposed to be the Messiah, conquer Rome. Said Elijah and Moses are here. If you die, what are they going to do? This is like you know, three amigos. We're all supposed to now bring it all in. So they struggled with it. I think it's one reason why Jesus said you can't tell anybody yet because they didn't get it. But he does say, once I rise from the dead, then you can tell everybody about it. Well, they did because we have a written account here. Why? Because after the resurrection, they would understand exactly what they had seen. They would, oh, remember Moses and Elijah talking about his depart? We get it now. Which means they could now share it accurately after the resurrection. They could not do that before. So their understanding would not mature until the resurrection. In fact, John actually begins his gospel with recounting the transfiguration. Listen to this. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the opening dialogue from the gospel of John. He got it. He uses it now as the basis for his gospel. Peter does the same thing. Peter used his eyewitness of the transfiguration as proof of the gospel and the validity of his preaching. Turn to first or second Peter chapter one. Second 
Second Peter chapter one verse sixteen. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when we received when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made by him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. On the Holy Mount. That's a reference to the Transfiguration. Peter says, I was there, I heard the Lord speak, and that became the basis for Peter's gospel and his right to preach. This led to another question by them as they're walking. Verse 11, if you look at that in Mark chapter 9, it says this. They asked him, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That is a direct response to Jesus saying, well, I'm going to die. So now Peter's saying, but wait a minute. <laughs> the scribes tell us that Elijah is supposed to come and restore all things. Well, we just saw him. He's here. So what they're really doing here is they're not questioning as much as challenging Jesus. They're not accepting what Jesus said. They're saying, well, okay, we hear what you're saying about dying, Jesus, but wait a minute here. The scribes teach that Elijah's coming back to restore everything. We just saw Elijah on the mountain here with you. Obviously, he's here to restore everything. If what you're saying is true, then why would the scribes say that Elijah's supposed to come back and restore everything? Something doesn't match up here, Jesus. So this really isn't just a question like, well, tell us about it, Jesus. This is more of a challenge. They're not quite willing to accept what he said. They're asking for clarification. It's much like the conversations that I sometimes have with my own kids. When they ask questions, but it's not really a question. It's more of a challenge. But what about... Same type of thing here. Katie's laughing in the front row here. She knows what I'm talking about. Uh I know what you're talking about. You're welcome. I'll just start calling her Peter. Why? Yeah. The scribes taught that the Messiah would come, but only after Elijah would come and prepare people for him. Um, some even taught that the Messiah wouldn't even know who he was until he was anointed by Elijah. In other words, even the Messiah would, I don't know who I am until Elijah shows up, puts his hands on him, oh, you're the Messiah. It's like, oh, that's who I am, right? So seeing Elijah on the mountain with Jesus, they probably thought, confirmed in their mind, this is it, this is the time, and Jesus certainly couldn't die. So it's a challenge to them. Look at what Jesus' answer to them is. Verse 12 and 13, And he said to them, Elijah does come first, and he does restore all things. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So basically what he's saying is, you're, you're right to some degree, Peter. Elijah will return and will restore all things. But if that's the case, then how is it that the Messiah also has to suffer? How can those two things be true, Peter? So he's recognizing Peter's challenge. He's recognizing Peter's struggle. But then he goes on to say, But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. In other words, Peter, he's already been here. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. So Elijah did have to come first. 
However, the scriptures also prophesy that the Son of Man would have to suffer and be mistreated. How do both of those things come true? Well, basically what we learn is that Elijah did come first, but not in the person of Elijah. He came in the person of John the Baptist. Which fits, because who does Elijah represent? The prophets. What was John? A prophet in the spirit of Elijah, preaching in the wilderness, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What did John do? He prepared prophesied and prepared people for the restoration that would come through the Messiah. That's the answer. So Elijah did come first in the form of John the Baptist, but that brought up an interesting point. Jesus said, and look at what they did to him. They mistreated him. He suffered, and in the same way, I'm going to suffer. So Jesus puts all the pieces together for them. And what we find is that the third purpose of the transfiguration was to assure Jesus' followers that his death, burial, and resurrection were all part of God's plan. It wasn't some shocking thing that God had to respond to. It was all part of the plan. In fact, like I said, Moses and Elijah were there discussing Jesus' departure with him. And so the third thing that the trans Figuration did for us was to assure us that it was all part of God's plan. There was no defeat of the Messiah at the cross. There was a defeat of only one thing. Death. That was it. And so as the disciples walk away from this, what they should have understood was that, oh, John the Baptist was the one who prepared just like Elijah, but Jesus is going to have to suffer. It's all part of God's plan. They just had to keep their eye on one thing, the resurrection. Because Jesus made it really clear, I'm not just going to die, I'm not just going to be mistreated. Three times he predicted, I will rise from the dead. But they were sort of transfixed on only one part of it, the suffering. And you can understand why. You know, you've, you've been told all your life growing up, God's going to send the Messiah. He's going to establish his kingdom. And you look forward to that, and you, but you don't know all the pieces. I had a great conversation with, and I've got two guys in my life that I've considered my primary mentors, aside from Dustin, two primary mentors. Um, one of them is a guy that I worked for in seminary, when I was in seminary. Um, he had gone through the, the THM program, which is a fourth, fourth year of graduate studies in seminary. And... Um, probably one of the most brilliant, aside from maybe Ed DeZago, probably one of the most brilliant men I've ever met in terms of theology. Uh, he had a part photographic memory. He would remember Greek scripture like crazy. I'd probably come in with like Greek text, trying to study it and learn it. And I'd, just, I'd say something like, I'm stuck on verse 3 of whatever, and he'd quote it from memory sitting across the, I mean, he was that way. And I asked him, well, how do you do it? He goes, because I never forget it. It's like a curse. <laughs> but um, I, I called him not too many years ago, probably three or four years ago, and I just said, I want to talk to you about... Um, kind of end time stuff and the debate between pre-trib and pre-wrath and some of the different opinions on rapture and stuff. And he said, well, you know what happened that first time that Jesus came? They didn't have all the pieces and so they kind of missed parts of it. Because God hadn't revealed all of it yet. He goes, I think it's going to kind of be that way. He said, I think we have a certain amount of information that when we put it together, we can arrange it in a couple of different ways and you can make a better argument for this way or that way, but there's always problems with all of them. And he said, I, I suspect that someday when it all does start to happen... We're going to probably go, oh, that's how it all fits together because God will do what he's always done, progressively reveal more and more. 
So the first century Jews didn't have all the pieces because the Old Testament didn't lay out every single thing related to Messiah. There were elements of it that had to be put together when Christ finally came. Then it made sense. And that's why the disciples didn't quite put the pieces together. There were references to the suffering Messiah, references to the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ, but they were references. It wasn't spelled out exactly as you might expect. And so it's likely that that'll probably happen as well for us, that there will be some things that they'll... In fact, there's two witnesses that travel and prophesy. So there are probably going to be some additional details that we are missing to know exactly how everything is going to work out. And that was partly what they were dealing with back then. And so part of what's happening here is that Jesus is giving them a few more pieces to the puzzle that he'll suffer, die, and raise again. I'm going to quote something to you here. I'm going to use it as bits of a summary, I guess I'll say. I came across, I shared this with some of the guys in the church. I think Dave Malin was on the thread. I think Steve might have been, Dustin. Um, President of Union Theological Seminary in New York, a once very conservative, very well-respected seminary at one point in history. No longer. They've given up their soul already. But the president is a woman by the name of Serene Jones. I want to read you a quote. She said this, When you look in the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. Crucifixion is not something that God is orchestrating from upstairs. The pervasive idea of an abusive God-father who sends his own kid to the cross so God could forgive people is nuts. For me, the cross is is an enactment of human hatred. But what happens on Easter is the triumph of love in the midst of suffering. Isn't that reason for hope? Now, the reason I quote this is for a number of reasons. First, she doesn't recognize Jesus as God's Son. That's pretty clear from the rest of the article. She doesn't recognize Him as God in the flesh, and that that's one of the things that the Transfiguration did for us. It revealed to us that Jesus is God in the flesh. Well, she didn't quite get that. She also didn't recognize that Jesus is the object and authority of our faith. Quite clearly, that's not the case here. As you read through the article, what you find is that what she worships is faith itself, and it's an empty faith. In fact, at the end of the article, the guy who wrote the article or interviewed her said, "Um, considering you basically reject all of Christian doctrine, how could you really call yourself a Christian? And she says, well, I'm no different than you. You're a Christian. I'm a Christian too. In fact, I'm a minister. But she doesn't accept any of the Christian doctrines. She doesn't accept the resurrection of Christ. She doesn't accept that he's deity. Instead, she makes claims like this. There's no resurrection story in Mark. Really, three times Jesus Christ specifically states that he will die, be crucified, buried, and rise from the dead. In fact, the angel at the tomb says he's not here, he has risen! I don't know what book she's reading. There's no resurrection story in Mark. I don't know what planet she's living on. She's counting on the majority of people uh, reading or hearing this interview not to know the scripture well enough to confess what she's saying. Probably. Now, why do I use her as an example? Um, I think it fits what we've been talking about today. The transformation of Christ, this transfiguration, reveals that he was indeed God in the flesh, which she completely rejects. 
it's almost, and I put this in the email as I was talking with the, or emailing a gentleman, a picture of Schultz from Hogan's Heroes. I see nothing! It's a refusal to see. We have an eyewitness account of Christ being revealed in his pre-incarnate glory. It also illustrates the fact that she doesn't recognize Jesus Christ as the authority at this point. Her only authority is herself. Her religion, whatever it is she buys into or believes. But Jesus is to be the object of our faith. We transitioned away from a religious system. That was the Old Testament. Instead, now we transition to an object of God, the Son, who becomes our religion, if you will. The last thing is that she absolutely outright rejects the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We hear that in her words in this text. And yet that was one of the reasons for the transfiguration, to show that it was all part of God's plan. Those that were responsible for the law, those that were responsible for preaching to the Old, or to the, the Old Testament saints, those two individuals are talking with Jesus about his need to die and to be risen from the dead. It's all a part of God's plan from the beginning. And somehow, this president of what is supposed to be a Christian training center for preparing men and women to preach the gospel completely rejects all of that. And yet still will boldly profess, but I'm a Christian. 